Today's episode is brought to you by Search Press. For almost 50 years, Search Press has delighted crafters with detailed instruction books for knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, fiber crafts, painting, and drawing. Authors Debbie Shore, Sarah Payne, Claire Gelder, and Lorna Bateman have new best-selling titles to satisfy your sewing, quilting, crochet, and embroidery needs. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 155 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about quilting and activism with my guests, Sarah Trail and Juan Tapia. We're recording this episode in person here at the New England Quilt Museum in Lowell, Massachusetts, where there's an exhibit up through December 1st, 2019 of the Social Justice Sewing Academy quilts called Piecing Together Youth Voices in a 21st Century Sewing Circle. I spent some time this morning taking it all in and it's truly outstanding. So if you don't know Sarah Trail, she's the founder and executive director of the Social Justice Sewing Academy. Sarah learned to sew when she was a toddler and had a sewing career as a teenager when she wrote Sew with Sarah, a book that teaches teens and tweens how to sew clothes and accessories. She also starred in nationally published DVDs called Cool Stuff to Sew with Sarah, designed two fabric collections with fabric quilts and a pattern collection with simplicity. While attending UC Berkeley, Sarah created a quilt in memory of Trayvon Martin and her love for sewing and passion for social justice intertwined. After graduating from the Harvard University Graduate School of Education, she founded the Social Justice Sewing Academy to be a platform where youth create art that engages and educates communities. Juan Tapia is one of the students who has been a participant in the Social Justice Sewing Academy, and I'm excited to hear from him about his experience as well. Juan just graduated from high school and is now working for a nonprofit called Courage, Communities United for Restorative Youth Justice, that works with formerly incarcerated young people. He's a digital design associate and is hoping to become the communications department head at the organization. So Sarah and Juan, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for traveling all the way from California to Boston to (laughs) see the exhibit and to talk with me. So I spent the morning looking at these moving and beautiful quilts um, in this really inspiring exhibit. And I'd love to start by um, having you walk us through the process of how they were made, Sarah, because you've developed a really specific process with different groups of people who are involved at each step, which is really interesting. So for people who don't really understand it yet, if you can explain 
how it all works. You start with young people and a conversation. Is that right? Yes. So we start in like typically a high school class, although we've done it in homeless shelters, juvenile halls, and various other community settings. But it starts with conversations on, you know, what matters to you? What do you come up with as a community definition of social justice? What issues are, it's very much built on a place-based education platform, which is like grounded in whatever the community we're doing the workshop in. So in Chicago, they care about issues that are happening in Chicago. While in Memphis, they're talking about very specific Memphis issues, as would be in Boston. So the kids kind of, it's really home-based on kind of centering their narrative and their experience in wherever the workshop is being held. But they talk about systemic, institutionalized, um, you know, like structural forms of like problems that are happening, how we can break them, break them down, kind of talk about possible solutions, come up with how does that look like visualized? So it's like if you had to visualize your issue without using any words, what would that look like? Um, we kind of have conversations moving from a theory or an idea to an image. So kind of after those conversations, we do a peer review where they design something and they show it to someone just on a piece of paper. They show it to someone. They say, what does this drawing mean to you? And if a stranger can look and that like by stranger, I mean another classmate or, you know, another adult facilitator that might you know be helping in the room. If they can look at someone's drawing and say, oh, I get it. This is about this issue. Um, whether that's income inequality of men making more than a lot of women, whether that's an indigenous water, you know, conservative issue, whether that's gun control or even just gentrification. If you can look at your image that doesn't have any words and understand the social issue you're connecting it to, then that's a good design. Then they move on to the, um, like I guess the block creation process in which they get a 15 inch piece of t traditionally Kona cotton and they use raw edge applique techniques minus the sewing of using glue based it glue and fabric to secure and design their block and then they write an in-depth artist statement which is a two-pager of who you are why it matters what your blocks about what you want the community to know and what you could do if anything to you know work on addressing the issue so when they're doing the design process so is this over more than one session so i'm just trying to like envision it's usually four to six hours so whether we break okay. that into every Monday through Friday. Monday will be conversation, Tuesday will be conversation, Wednesday will be design, Thursday, Friday will be block creation, or it can be an afternoon and after school program from three to seven will include light dinner or snacks and it'll be finished in one day. So the model is really different, but on average it's at least a few hours. A few hours, okay. And, um, and are you generally working with communities of color doing this or can really any community do this? Really any community, typically the communities that do request it are low income, which inevitably um, is unfortunately disproportionately communities of color. But um, but we've definitely done it in almost all you know monogamous you know or hegemonic you know like privileged suburbs. Okay. So it's it's definitely an adaptable kind of model. But uh -huh. I'd say majority are young people of color. Okay, got it. All right, and so they um, they go through the conversation of what's important to them, what issues are facing their community. Then they go through this idea of sort of sketching that out without any words. And is it always no words that end up on the blocks? No, they can definitely add words. And that's, the I guess, the key piece of the second part, which is the embroidery volunteer. Um, typically cutting out letters out of fabric is pretty hard for kids who've never you know, used yeah. textiles before. Yeah. So I, it's definitely not a you can't have words. It's a really focus on your image because that's what the majority of your time should be because this is like an art piece for you to express yourself. But if you want words, that's what your design instructions and stuff that will go to an embroidery volunteer. And the embroidery volunteers, at this point, we have over a thousand people, not that continuously do it, but they have signed up. So we have over a thousand that have signed up and they get the block and they spend, you know, time hand appliquing and just 
like embroidering the raw edge pieces that these kids have glued down. I see. Along with the instructions, if any, that the kid has provided. Okay. All right. So there can be words, but the kid themselves will likely not be the one adding the words. Correct. However, some kids are really intentional and they're like, I want my words cut out. That's absolutely fine. Okay. If their design, you know, really needs it. But traditionally, if they only have 15 inches, just saying focus on the design, words can come, you know, at the end of it. It's just like, for example, if I've, I've learned in trial and error, if yeah. you allow kids to start words, they'll start with their words and they won't finish their block design. Right. So it's just a timing thing of if something's not going to be done, let it be words because the volunteer can catch you on that. Whereas opposed to if you start with your words and you don't finish your design, your block's not going to make sense. Are there any other things you've learned besides that? I bet there are other things you've learned around composition or tips yeah. that you give them. Like, for example, before we start, we'll do a quick lesson on color theory. We'll do a quick lesson on, like, realism. It's like some kids will see fabric and like love the cotton candy pink but they want their block to be on mass incarceration so as much as that might look avant-garde to do a jail in pink it, people might not understand it's supposed to be a jail so just kind of understanding all this fabric is donated you're welcome to take whatever you want home so you can create whatever you want when you go home and you know there's oftentimes embroidery floss and other things we can give them um, but really just understand this the purpose of making this block, as much as it is, you know, to have fun and express yourself, but it's really to have people understand what your issue is. And it's like sometimes the viewers might not understand it, while you will understand it. And not everyone might may take the time to read your artist statement. So just kind of encouraging youth to stay grounded in. You want this to illustrate what you want it to illustrate, and I don't want any of, you know, any fabric choice to deter someone from understanding your message. Right. So just not choosing it because it's super pretty. Correct. But you can it. take the pretty stuff with you, so you don't have to just depart from it correct you can still have it because it is donated and probably you don't really necessarily always have access to fabric i mean very exactly. few of us do necessarily right if you're not really a quilter exactly. how would you have access to fabric if you're you know don't come from a family who sews for example so you can still have it but for this project focus on the message correct okay that's so that's really a good tip for sure and color theory that's good to teach them for sure just understanding contrast um sometimes well people want a white block but want to use white letters like why don't we consider th getting a gray block so and they're like well what if they just sew around it in yellow like that would work so mm -hmm. really just kind of understanding but not necessarily all young people understand during the immediate workshop process how involved each step of the community quilt is okay right so it's like some kids will understand especially if I have an example but sometimes I'll do a workshop without an example of a finished product so they necessarily won't like I'll have an example of what embroidery looks like but if the person who's embroidered has used real colors on real colors they're not going to understand the level of like contrast that embroidery can have like if I don't bring a block that's already already has words they won't understand well what does words and embroidery look like so I try to bring you know various examples but it really just depends yeah I mean all of us benefit from examples, if you've ever taken a, a sewing a workshop, yeah. seeing a variety of examples is hugely helpful to envisioning Definitely. what the possibilities even could be. Okay. All right. So they go through this process. They create it. And do kids ever want to, like, keep their block? Does that is that ever a problem? Um, they Sometimes they do. But really, when they understand, like, you're, you're definitely, like, kids have the option. If you don't want to donate your block to be in the community quilt, you can definitely keep it. But after kids realize, like, the community quilt where they will go, like cool places like showing up in the New England Quilt Museum, they're far more, they've been shown in Harvard, they've been shown in San Francisco Exploratorium, they're going to the Paducah. I think kids are far more engaged about the opportunity to have their art be seen by public than keeping it. Okay. And because they're given the option of keeping extra blocks and fabric, if they really enjoy the process, they'll keep more to make more. Okay, got it. All right. Okay, so they finished the block. 
Um, and Juan, you've been through this process. Um, and tell us about your experience. When did this come to you, or how did you find out about this? Um, so, yeah, I mean, growing up, like, for me, it was, like, pretty rough. Like, I didn't have all the support that I wish I would have had now or, like, that I like that I get from, like, other people. So it was, like, uh, growing up, it was, like, my dad wasn't present all my life. He didn't come back into my life till I was, like, 16 and a half. And then my mom was, like, incarcerated, like, in and out of jail from, like, elementary school through, like, high school. So it was, like, a pretty weird transition just living with, like, grandma, uncle, and, like, being, like, in an abusive household. So my first case that I ever caught was at 11 for grand theft. And that's kind of the one that, like, set me up to be, like, pe people started actually noticing and paying attention to me. So it's like, damn, I, I feel like, oh, I got to actually do something bad in order for me to get attention or, like, for somebody to actually notice, like, my existence. And uh, shortly after that, I had caught a case. And after after I had caught that case, I had got into a shooting. And then after that, we had moved. I had to move, like, districts for, like, safety reasons. And then when I was living in Richmond, that's kind of like when I caught my second case for assault on somebody. And after that, they was like, look, we're going to... I had met this this counselor at my school. Her name is Hazel. She's like, hella cool. And she was just like, all right, look, this is what we're going to do. Like, we noticed that you're not doing so good in school. And we noticed that you keep getting in trouble. Your mom and your dad aren't present. So it's like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put you in this program at Berkeley where you're going to live there throughout the summer to keep you safe. Like, I was like, man, I, I really don't want to do this. Like, I was just like, like, my brother been through the program. He got kicked out, like, the first month or so. And, the, like, he never went back. And so I was like, I, I'm pretty sure they're just going to do me like they did my brother. Like, I'm going to go. I'm going to have a trouble with somebody. And then I'm going to end up getting kicked out. But what happened was uh, one of my best friends, who's quit, is up in the exhibit right now, Brian, was like, like let's do this together you know like he was like he's seen how much i was struggling throughout high school and he like really kept me on track like him and like two other females for which we had like a little group in high school like we always kept each other on check so he was like if you do it i'll do it and like we'll do this shit together and i was like all right let's do it so and this is like the story that i always tell everybody because i feel like i wasn't meant to be in sarah's class but then like i got like i don't know maybe it was like destiny or fate or whatever but they had told us, they had gave us the survey and it was like, from one to five, write the class that you want the least. And I ended up doing it backwards because I seen sewing and <laughs> I was just like, I was just like, you know what? I don't want to do sewing because there's all these other, they had like rocket building and like building like like a, a little architect sculpture for like a marble to go down through like a hoop and like people was going out and doing like things like at parks and Six Flags and stuff like that. And I was just like sewing, I was just like, for sure, one. And then, and then when I got back, they told me like they told me that that I had did it the opposite way, but that there was no more space because I did it the opposite way. They had already accounted for me to be in that class, so they said instead of five being like the one I wanted the most, one was like I had to rank them one through five, and I was like, ah. Oh. But then like I got in the class and I was trying to get like out, and then I like Brian was just like Brian was in that class too, which was crazy. So I was like, you know what, like let's just do it. I was just like, I'm not gonna deal with like the whole trying to get switched out and moving people around. So I was like, let's just do it. And then that's kind of how like I got into Sarah's class to begin with in the first place. It was fate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. All right. So, and what did your block look like? Do you remember? Or do you uh, remember what you made? Yeah. At the time, I think I was like around 15, 16, and I was like a freshman. We had just barely moved to Richmond. And it's crazy because there's literally one, because the program is called Upward Bound for, like, it's the Berkeley program. The uh, It's a residential program. And there's literally only one school that offers it in Richmond. And I just happened to go to that school and just happened to know the counselor. And it was just like crazy. And 
when I was there in Richmond, like one of the biggest things that was happening, well, not even just Richmond, just like the whole Bay Area in general, one of the biggest uh, issues that was going on was like people getting displaced. So like that year for 2016, 380,000 people have got displaced. And from there, it's probably more, but that's just around like the Bay in general. So like gentrification was like this big thing that like, like everybody talked about it throughout the 80s and the 90s and like 2000s was like when it really started hitting hard and then like i guess people didn't really see the transition into like the last couple years where it was like boom like uber moved into oakland and then lyft and then like all these little companies like tech groups like google started buying out fruitvale area which is like one of like the most traditionally like latino cultural you know centered places in in oakland and it's like google just moved in like down the street and i'm just like and they're like bidding like they're like outbidding everybody they can like i remember like my organization was trying to buy a building for really cheap and then like google was like boom like you guys just don't got the funds for it and then like it was just like a struggle like it's always been a struggle just like gentrification was always just like a struggle for a lot of people and then like i think at that time i had already got evicted from like three homes and like like there's laws in oakland for like being like kicked out and like being evicted but there's no there's no rent control like enrichment so like if somebody's like oh today you pay 1500 and tomorrow they make you pay 2000 it's like you have no say what happens like there's no court there's no there's no lawyers no judge that could really help you because there is no laws based around that so like if somebody wanted to up the rent and then we had like and we couldn't afford it we had to leave and then like there's people that won't check your background but they'll be like oh your like your money is your word that's what i heard like the landlord saying to my mom your money is your word and then like my mom is immigrant and so he tried to hit her with like oh if you guys don't move by this time we can call ice and like they try using like deportation as like like threatening us and stuff like that and i i just found it like very difficult so my first quilt was around gentrification at the time and it was like to me it was very personal because I was going through it and like I knew a lot of other kids that, that were in the program that was going through it and just seeing like how how powerful like like the whole quilt in general was and like how hella like a lot of people just resonated with it and like could could kind of like relate it was like to me it was like like boom it was like all right so like I created something and now people were like actually paying attention so like I don't got to do like much to catch people's attention but like simple things like that like just general like problems that we have in society day like nowadays it's like it's like it's crazy to me how like people could really just relate off of something that was so small yeah absolutely that's beautiful that's a great story thank you for sharing all of that I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Search Press, and we have two Search Press authors here with us to tell us more. I'm Debbie Shaw, and I'm an author with Search Press. And Debbie, what brought you to your craft? My mother was a seamstress, so I've always been a sewer. I started writing sewing books around about 10 years ago, and it completely took over my life. I now design books, fabrics, patterns, and products, and I've got the best job in the world. I bet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Debbie. My name is Sarah Payne and I'm an author for Search Press. And Sarah, what brought you to your craft? I've been a crafter since I was a very small child, but a chance visit to a fabric shop about 15 years ago when I saw all of the colours, I saw the quilts, I immediately bought a sewing machine, a ton of fabric, signed up for a year-long workshop immediately and I was completely hooked and haven't stopped 16 since. 
Now that you've heard a little bit from Debbie Shore and Sarah Payne, you can check out their books and all the rest of the Search Press authors in your local fiber arts and craft stores, or view their whole catalog at Search Press North America, that's searchpressusa.com. Visit Search Press at the New York Sheep and Wool Festival, Quilt Market, the Embroiderers Guild of America, TNNA, and many more craft industry events. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now, back to my conversation with Sarah and Juan. Um, okay, so kids like Juan in this program, they create these blocks, very personal stories are expressed. And the next stage of the process, right? That's where we left off. So yes. the blocks are now collected. You have a stack of them. What happens next? So there's really two different types of program. Juan was in our six week summer program where he made a full mini quilt. He I made see. his own quilt. Okay. He embroidered his own quilt. Oh wow. He quilted his own quilt and he binded his own quilt. Our workshops are more like 50 plus kids. And so we'll, every kid will make a block and that'll be a community quilt process. Okay. So while Juan's, we walked through, he did the embroidery, you know, complained, you know, that process. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a lot. Our workshop process. So we do, we finish the blocks, you know, a few hours, we come in. It's really just about the conversation, about the therapeutic, just outcome of creating something that you're proud of. Then I get them all. I take a photo, I document. We have people sign up on our website to embroider a block. Um, and I say, okay, Sally in Minnesota is going to get this block. We send it to her with any instructions as a kid has add. Some kids, like, instructions will be like, please use red thread and add flames. This is supposed to be flames, you know, on the logs that they built because they're flames they didn't like that they cut out. Or it can be something like, you know, please just outline her hair in black. Or sometimes, you know, please add dreads. Or please add a nose. I couldn't cut a good nose. Please try to add a nose and thread. So really, you know minute but really important details that you know kids have wished yeah. they could have done but you know might not necessarily have had the the creative ability but then they embroider them usually between like 45 days and then they mail them back and then we have another team of volunteers that are in the east bay we have a long arm quilter named nancy williams who gives her studio like as just community space so we'll invite you know five or six piecers to come to her studio we'll take all the kids blocks we'll fuse them to like a lightweight interfacing because sometimes the, a lot of the hand embroidery is distorted the block so we'll fuse them so things don't, you know, get crooked and, and piecing. We'll square them all up. They start at 15 inches. We usually square them up like 14 and a half, just so all edges are, you know, uniform. Then we add a border, which is typically a one and a half inch border. That'll be one inches finished. So we border all the quilts, and then we just piece around all the blocks to get one quilt, which is four rows by five for a total of 20 blocks. Okay, got it. So that's how they're all finished. Yes. All right. And then you have all of these quilts. And then what do you do to be able to get them shown? Are you pitching these to galleries or how are you getting really, this Really, I kind of just let the embroidery community bring it to where they are. So most of like um, the places that we do get the quilt seen, they've seen it on the Instagram or they've known a kid who's talked about it. So it's really kind of like a community word of mouth. It's okay. like I've, I've seen gallery proposals. That's not my background or my strong suit. So, um, so okay. it's, it's and it's really not yeah. an art program as much as it is just a youth voice program. So it's like really, if you want to show the quilts, are you comfortable letting youth come and speak about their blocks, their you know their perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So really, um, youth and our embroidery volunteers, like an embroidery volunteer, will be like, hey, I volunteer at this library. 
we can have an exhibit at the library. Library will cover shipping, small monetary donation, call it a day. They can have the quilts. The kids can come out and speak, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Okay. Got it. And so you're headed. You're headquartered in Antioch, California. Is the that mail right? goes to Antioch, okay. but our real headquarters are at Nancy Studio, which I is in Emeryville, okay. which is almost Oakland. Okay. All right. Got it. And. Um, are you a nonprofit? Is it yes? Okay. So we're five hundred one c three, which means people who donate fabric can get a tax deductible donation along with monetary. Okay. And are you in need of fabric? Should people be donating? Are you full? I up? mean, I think I think the right kind of fabric. So it's like we've gotten like at first it was just like we need fabric, but when people send like sixties or forties prints, that might not be what kids are necessarily needing as right. much as skin tones or things that look like grass or jail or bricks or skies or suns or police uniforms or you know prison bars like you know things that like like not solids because it's not about just solids but like textured reading solid prints okay got it all right especially batiks and things that look really you know natural when kids kind of want to like it's kind of like painting with fabric they want like not solid fabrics but they want solids like fabrics all right so people listening that's what's that's what they're looking for. Okay, um, and you have full time staff. You're full time. Obviously, this is your job. No, I, I work full time. You work full time, so Correct. this is not your full time job. Not at all. All this right, is, what do is, you do as your full time? I'm a teacher in a jail in California where I teach inmates how to get their high school diploma. Okay. Oh wow, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, that must be a challenging and interesting job. It's it's very it's very a lot. It comes with a lot of complex nuances of like working in a, in a system that I don't believe in, but at the end of the day, inmates need access to education regardless. Absolutely. All right, so that's your full-time job. I do this when I get off work. And you do this as your, yeah, a- after-work job. And do you, does so does the Social Justice Sewing Academy have any full-time staff, or is this a volunteer? 100% volunteer. It's based. 100% volunteer um, nonprofit. Okay, got it. Um, and so all of your, your, your long armor, everybody's volunteer. Everybody's volunteer. Okay, so there's no paid... Staff. Everything's a labor of love. Everything is a labor of love. So the workshop instructors, Everything. everybody. Okay. All right. That's interesting. And so if people um, out here listening are like, this sounds amazing already, just listening to it so far, want to make a donation, is that something that people can just write a check? Yeah. They can write a check on the website. We have like okay. a PayPal link. Um, they could send it with fabric. Okay. You know, anything really Absolutely. Works. Okay. Okay. Right. Just wanted to. <laughs> and you were, fa- this um, organization was founded in 2017. Is we that right? We got a nonprofit status in 2017. In 2017. Okay. Um, but, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit um, about the seeds of how this got there. Um, so, uh, and I know you're, I saw that your mom, is her name pronounced Kay? Mm-hmm. Um, she was on the board of directors. Yes. And um, it sounds like she, t- she was the one who taught you how to sew when you were four. Yes. Is that right? She what did. do you remember from that? Um, experience. So I was, I guess, a pretty hyper child, surprisingly. <laughs> um, but my mom would really let me sit on her lap and guide the fabric. So she'd push the pedal, I'd guide the fabric, and she just let me use basically all her scraps from her quilts because she likes to hand quilt. And so, um, so I would take all her pieces, sew it together, make doll blankets, you know, you know, baby doll ble- beds, something for my dog, you know, simple things, but really just piecing her scraps together. So after that, I kind of like, well, I want to actually go buy my own fabric. So when I was about like. 10 she'd put me in adult level sewing classes because i if you know a quarter inch seam really any sewing class is possible 
So with that, you know, I got kicked out of quite a few because I talked too much. But um, for the most part, you know, like I'd, le- I'd learn the technique and maybe I wouldn't make it all four days, maybe one or one and a half, depending. But um, really, like after that, when I got the book deal, a few like people were just like, oh, like you could teach classes. So it's really it all started with like I want young people to know how much fun sewing is, how much. And it's also like a lot of the kids under 15. What can you do to make money? Sewing can really be a lucrative like, you know craft art form that you could turn into you know an entrepreneur if you can make you know border names on jeans friends you know like just little things you can make ipod cases you can make school folders you can make backpacks scrunchies Scrunchies. i I used to sell scrunchies in eighth grade yeah Yeah. like like those kind of things so it's (laughs) like you know we're all young we all want jobs you know babysitting not everyone has access to babies nor you know do you have that network so really sewing was like i was making little things for friends in high school and like custom scrunchies yeah just you know jansport backpack embroidering your name on your backpack was like five dollars like so little things so sewing really started as like a way to you know be a young entrepreneur and then once i learned quilts you know my mom friends I'm sure you know feeling sorry for me they'd, they'd be like okay I'll commission a quilt for a hundred dollars but then as I got older I was able to cut out other people's quilts for them so they'd give me their fabric their pattern and I just cut and prep their quilts so then it's like you, you know you just kind of find ways to you know do things as a kid mm-hmm. all right so and you also were sewing through your church right the Grace Temple um church my pastor allowed us to buy 10 sewing machines from walmart and Mm -hmm. we had a sewing studio that would be after service Mm -hmm. and so with that um basically like every youth sunday kids can bring stuff that they're proud of so i'd always bring sewing stuff and so like a lot of kids like i want to sew i want to sew so mom's like well why don't we just make a sewing studio so we we got 10 sewing machines we turned like the vacation bible school area into a sewing program so after service we'd have three four hours and church mothers would you know volunteer their time as well and so kids who didn't go to our church were coming after service to just learn how to sew so it was a really just fun program and I think it really proved regardless of your socioeconomic status because the kids who were taking the classes in Joann's and you know things that I was doing through my book deal were were kids who had parents that would bring them with the rotary and the the kid and the, their own machine. The kids who were coming to the free sewing program were really just low-income kids around the community that were interested but didn't have access. So that was really kind of an eye-opener in the equity of sewing, of who has access, who doesn't have access. These are the kids who are in foster care, who, who didn't have grandparents who knew how to sew. So it was really like sewing is something that everyone can enjoy, only some can afford. Right. Okay, so you were seeing both sides of that, right? Right. So let's talk a little bit about how you got this book deal. So um, where did you meet this representative from CNT Publishing? At CNT Publishing. So you live near CNT Publishing? It's in Concord. I live maybe 30 minutes away, and they have a warehouse book deal where they sell all their books for a few dollars compared to, you know, traditional prices. Okay. And they had a line of, like, people that said, if you want to write a book, come see me. And there's a whole bunch of adults in the line. I was like, Mom, I want to go talk to her. Mom's like, Sarah, you're 12. Have a seat. (laughs) These are professional quilters. You know, you've been doing this like eight years, you know. And I was like, well, mom, when the line goes shorter, I want to go talk to her. Mom's like, Sarah, you know, you have to go to college first. Mom's a really big advocate for like, you know, you, you have to become someone before you can write a book that people want to read. And I was like, I understand, mom, but before we leave, you know, I'm going to go talk to her. Mom's so like, you were like at the si- discount sale. Yes. But there was like a lady there who yes. was like, if you want to write a book, come talk to me. And her and line you, was full. So I was right. just kind of And you waiting. just waited. Correct. Got so it. So then I said, hi, I'm Sarah. You know, I'd like to write a book. And she, 
I think gave me a business card and we had and I said no no I can really sew like I, I can sew you should come see my work she's like well if you call me I'd love to see your work and she was really polite and right. I think looking now I think she was just being polite of course because you were 12 yeah, yeah. But, but when I did come and I brought like my but you came back I did okay and so she said you know and I said mom call her my mom took almost two weeks to call her because my mom's like Sarah that's right right Sarah. this is silly but yeah. you insisted okay. I did and so we brought the quotes the prom dresses the things I had made and I brought it and they were like wow like you really made this and I was like I, I really you know my mom's my mom's invested in me like this isn't you know this isn't I'm not some child you know prodigy or any I'm not super talented I have parents who've invested in me therefore this is the outcome of what they poured into me in terms of classes times access right. etc so after that they were like well you know to do a book proposal you have to write this that the third mom's like she doesn't know how to do any of that I could help her they're like, you know honestly they they basically offered the contract on almost on the spot and I just came up with what type of projects do you want to do um, I think the, the most challenging thing was in writing a book I didn't realize step outs you have to do the project like sure. 20 times oh yeah I've written three books I know <laughs> I did not I, did, I, like, I yeah. remember like this is my 8th grade year right yeah and, I, and I'm used it's to sewing it's a ton of work it, it really is like I'm used to sewing for fun it's a different beast and it's like you have deadlines so I think that was really just how how much work you know, the, the right. real You're like, what have I taken on here? Yeah, but I mean, ultimately we finished it. Um, you know, it was like published like my ninth grade year of high school. Wow. So then, you know. That's then, hugely impressive. Then yeah. you know, a bunch of Barnes & Noble book tours, a bunch of Joanne's book tours. And again, I got catapulted back into that privileged world of teaching right. low-key so affluent there, kids. Right, so you're there. Right, you're there and you're seeing the affluent world of sewing, like people who are buying several hundred dollar machines who come with all of the... All the con- this consumerism, frankly, that quilting and that sewing really promotes. Yeah. And so then after a while, I'm like, well, can we make it free? Like, can this be? A-? And it's like the book deal, simplicity, the fabric. Like, they didn't want it to be free. And it's like, I get it. They invested in me to sell, you know, what I want. It's to- all about selling products. And that's kind of like what I realized. Like, this isn't equitable because there's a whole field of young people who can't afford this. So it was like, I feel like I was perpetuating privilege and I was perpetuating inaccessibility by promoting, you know, these things. So then, you know, once and I got- through the, so when you were doing the free classes at church after the service, the kids who were coming to that didn't own their own machines. Correct. But had they had the machines from Walmart. They could come. The fabric was there. Everything. And they could do the same stuff. But Exactly. Right. So it was like I was in the world of like I was doing it for free after church on Sundays. I was doing it for profit, you know. But it's like it wasn't even about profit. It was about I had to do it because I wrote the book. So I promised so many events. So it was it was just kind of like how could I mix both worlds? Right. Okay. Right. Like how so could I get the funding that we have from these private events? Right. To the low income kids that don't have you know the accessibility of the resources. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it was interesting. I read an interview that you did when you were a senior in high school. Uh, in a newspaper and that I found online. And at that time, you said that you had a goal of creating a free sewing studio for kids to empower them through the art of sewing. And I just thought that was really interesting because it sounds like even then, like the seed of what became the Social Justice Sewing Academy is not exactly that, but it's like the seed was already there, even though it took like many steps later. But this is like, your 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 life's work it was in there yeah it was definitely like it wasn't like I, I kind of realized that that like creating a free sewing academy wouldn't be something I could do with corporate sponsorships um it would kind of have to be something that would really have to rely on the community 
It would have to be about having other quilters and mentors who were willing to pour into me. I had a few mentors, like I had a quilting mentor named Eleanor. I had a fashion design mentor named Laverne. You know, I had neighbors, like I had people and adults willing to give me their time because my mom would, you know, give them gift cards. And she, you know, wouldn't necessarily be compensated, but my mom was just very much like, if you're, you know, investing in my kid, I'm gonna make sure, you know, you get, you get things. But not every parent is gonna be like that. So. It's just about making sure every kid is quote unquote worth it for someone to give in to them and their time and you know access and letting them just come to your house. Like the first time I'd seen a sewing studio was going to my mentor's houses. Like, wow, you guys have an entire bedroom dedicated to sewing. Right. Like, that this, it was a different world, just giving access to people who cared to, to teach you foundational paper piecing and how to make a double wedding ring quilt and, and those type of things. Right, right, absolutely. Okay, all right, so you go to Berkeley and um, what did you major in at Berkeley? Political science, public policy. Okay, got with it. With a minor in education. Okay, all right. And the murder of Trayvon Martin really changed things for you. Yeah. And I wondered if you could describe sort of how you turned to quilting in that moment and what you did, what you made, and, and like the connections, that how it sort of brought things together for you. So yeah, in 2012 when Trayvon was murdered, it was my freshman year at Cal. And I was, again, I was a young college freshman. I'd skipped a little bit of traditional school. So I was young, so my parents were kind of having me come home every weekend um, to sew and really just to be home because they didn't want me free on the weekends at college. Did you go to college early? Did I you, did. At, so what? 17. At 17, okay, got it. So they were just like, you know, you need to come home until you're 18, you know. So, I mean, just being helicopter parents, I don't necessarily know why. But, but, but really, you know, Trayvon got killed. I was in the middle. I think I was making like probably like a double wedding ring or like a foundational like 50 state stars like it was this really intensive pattern that took a lot of time so like i'm in the class and and like trayvon was maybe killed like you know that week and like i'm like guys did you hear about trayvon martin like i'm again with my like quilting class that i've, I've been with for a few weeks this is like a every saturday type of class and it was really like the lack of it was a, a collective really traditional class traditional okay, class yeah. traditionally aged okay i was you know obviously the aberration but really right. just like there was no collective outrage and I think everyone was just kind of come in it for the blase. usual it was deal. And Got it's it. like I get politics and grandkids might not be popular sewing classes, but that was something that was really hitting home. And I think in that moment, I realized the people I spend my, all my weekends with, the people I look at as mentors, the people that like, you know, really taking me under their wing and are teaching me my favorite hobby, really don't care about the same things I do. And I mean, I get that it was in Florida. I get that I didn't know him personally, but it still didn't matter. Yeah. Like that hit home. It was super important to you. Correct. And it was like life shattering to you. Correct. And it and wasn't. It wasn't to anybody there. Correct. Yeah. And I think that was really when it's like, you know what? I didn't finish that. I mean, I ultimately finished it, but I kind of put that quilt home. I was like, mom, I don't necessarily want to go back. I want to make a new quilt. And she's like, well, what do you want your quilt to be on? Trayvon Martin, I made a quilt called Rest in Power Trayvon. That was the first quilt I made that I didn't use a pattern. I designed my own pattern. Patterns, but I really, when I made quilts, it was like I was going to do a hard quilt so I could be like, oh, you know, this quilt that took you seven years, like, you know, I finished in a few months. Like, it was just, it was just really about like just doing things for skills, you know, to, to learn the skill, have it under my belt, okay, on to the next. But this was the first quilt where I designed the pattern from scratch. And it wasn't a pattern that I was doing for making. So I had made patterns for sale, like for Joanne's Simplicity. Like, you know, I wrote in their books. Like, I'd make a pattern for a book, but this was really the first thing. I wasn't doing it to sell the pattern. I wasn't doing it. I was making it. Was it was art. Yeah. And I think that was really the big difference. So it's like I, I looked at lots of photos of him. I read a lot of interviews with his parents. Um, 
and I really just like okay I want, obviously I want the hoodie how am I going to capture his eyes what kind of fabric do I want to use I went down to Brightex I got a lot of batiks and, and just random like cotton fabrics and and I really wanted the background to be textured so it could show just the multi-threads and multiple makeup multi-racial like fabric of America and and I really just started cutting Raj applique design so with that one I obviously am not good at hand embroidery, um, but I want, I machine, you know, just Raj applique. It was really just cutting, piecing applique. And so it's like, it was like a collage. And so I made it. And then after I made it, I entered it in the same amount of shows of like, you know, traditional shows and it got denied from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really what hit home of like, for someone who really never had like, I mean, and again, the seams, I mean, there wasn't any piecing, but like. It was the same caliber. It was a well-made quilt. Correct. So for it to be excluded from every show that I applied to, mm-hmm. I think that really showed me the the mindset of the. When you had had so much success and prior. so much acceptance, more yeah. than anything, yeah, like it was it was it was not about just hurting my feelings. It was like you guys have accepted everything I've made since I've been twelve, and the one time I make a quilt that doesn't that's have an about, accompanying pattern, that's right. something that really matters. Really, that really matters. The thing that really matters. It was like, oh, yeah. this wasn't the place for it. Yeah. So that was really, like, what kind of shattered it. And it's like, well, if that's not the place for it, then I'll create a new space. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's really powerful. Um, All right. So... um so what came next? So how did you create that space? What what did you do next? I applied for a grant through Berkeley um, that started the summer program that Juan was a part of. So that was the first six-week program, Monday through Friday, every day, on Berkeley's campus. All right. And this was part of your senior thesis or the this senior like, project? Yeah. So it's like I basically I just designed the project. I designed a curriculum that was built heavy on ethnic studies, youth participatory action, um, grounded in critical race theory, really intersectional frameworks. So like, Tony Morrison, Audre Lorde, James Baldwin. Like, we just read really, you know, just, like, Maya Angelou. Like, we just read poems and, and literature from indigenous LGBTQIA. Like, we just really read just a lot of work and everyone kind of, like, if we're doing gentrification, let's hear some, you know, people and scholars in the field, poverty scholarship. Like, there's just, we just did a lot of research for them to really understand the issue in its entirety and kind of narrow down, to, like, how is it applied? And then what needs to be done? You know, what do you care about? And so then... Um, it was really about, I, you know, helping all these kids individually create their own quilt, and we had no support, so everything had to be done by them. Right. So that first program had a really strong academic correct piece that was um, part of it. Yes. There was reading. Yes. Homework. Homework. Okay. So it was like an academic program. Yes. That had sewing in the afternoon yes. kind of thing. It was so like it was, it was like it was like the scholarship informed the art. So it was very much like we learned and read in the morning. But that dictated how your design was going to be. That dictated how you're going to speak about it. Because it's the goal of creating art, not necessarily to be an artist, but really to be like an artivist with a heavy focus on the activist aspect of you need to understand the issue if you want to speak about it. Mm-hmm. You need to understand, you know, what's caused it, you know, like what's the history of it? Like right. what's the history of the city? What's the history, you know, like. Before you can make an, an artistic representation, correct. you need to do your research. Correct. All right. So that was that. And that was the 25 thousand dollar grant yes. that you got for that okay and um and then that program though obviously has was adapted so, yeah or changed so then i went time. to harvard so, so right then after, you went to harvard right after that right after the summer program right so i did it the summer between graduating from berkeley going to harvard i did the summer program then i got to harvard and i realized i didn't have six weeks to dedicate to a b- bunch of kids nor could i even find that setting so first it was like it, could it be an only summer program or could i change and like make the curriculum malleable enough to do smaller workshop sizes so really the first 
origins of the workshops were like every day Monday through Friday and they were week-long projects and then it kind of got condensed into like one or two days just given as the rigor of the coursework at Harvard kind of picked up it was like I can't keep missing classes I'm gonna fail okay so while you were at Harvard you were still conducting these classes workshops. and workshops um, you did one at the Cambridge School of Weston yeah. and other that's where the ABC quote was made okay the one that's right out here yes. right which is a, a school a private school that's close to public to, uh, oh actually a public school that's yeah. close to here okay got it um, uh, and so you, you kept doing it but you had to change the the actual makeup of the workshops yeah so I still adaptable. cared about the educational component but I structured it far more to be conversationally instead of research heavy mm -hmm. so it's okay. more about youth sharing more about building rapport and community just sharing and like really what it is what you make of it right and it's like obviously like i'll have the, the the definition of equity versus equality and you know like i'll have you know some webster definitions but that's not going to be what dictates it it's going to be what matters to you guys so let's collectively come up and and really just about collectively owning and sharing your narrative on how you perceive it right and so the the information really comes from inside yeah instead of having to to make it about doing external research correct it's the the information comes so from at this point our you. summer programs are far more 50 50 academic first art while our workshops are far more 25 percent just come like just really restorative circles like we really just sit talk discuss like obviously i have some activities i could do like power versus privilege like you know there, there's definitely some but it's really more what matters to you and expressing yourself and then having that share out in a place to talk about it after you make it okay great and um did you find your time at Harvard. I also went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and um, it was an interesting experience. Did you find your time there to be uh, worthwhile? Yeah, no, I definitely, the professors were extremely, extremely supportive. Um, it's very high level. It is. It's, it's, it's not down to earth practical. It's interesting. Like you go, they, there's another graduate school of education, Simmons, that's like not far away. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you go there, it's very practical. And I feel like you go to Harvard, it's very like high level. It esoteric. is. It, it, yeah. it, it definitely was. I think I think the, the professor that like really shaped the most, her name is Eileen. And she, she allowed, it was a proposal writing class. And so the way that she taught me to craft like just in general in terms of like for research for academic for practice like she allowed not only did she allow like the, the class is amazing but she allowed an SGSA workshop in one of her classes where we called Reverend Jackson and we talked about social justice while the entire class was making a block just so they could understand firsthand how therapeutic expressing yourselves are we kind of talked about the importance of art through all subjects whether you're doing science or anything how you can like art can be an equitable practice that you can weave into you know everything so I think um, really just having professors that supported you and then even having a professor like hey I know your class is this week but it is recorded can I please go to you know this high school nearby do this workshop all day and I'll make sure that you know I watch the recording and having professors like go for it mm-hmm okay interesting um, all right so um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was your great great grandmother Margaret Smith smart Oh, smart. I'm sorry. Oh. I actually had that written down properly and then read it wrong. Um, so Margaret Smart, who um, was taken from Ethiopia when she was 12, around the time that you actually um, wrote your book. Um, and she um, was brought to America as a slave and she was a quilter. And I wondered what, like how you know about her, or what you know about her. So my grandma told me she was like really a 12 year old slave who was bought by a pedophile like a 50 plus year old white man who kind of raped her slash married her and she bore four of his kids. Um, one was, which was, was my grandma's mom. So really like, I mean, obviously we're Ethiopian by blood, but there's a lot of incest and or I would, wouldn't be incest because it wasn't family. It was just 
straight up rape. Um, but but really, my grandma just would kind of share like, oh, yeah, you know, she, she quilted. I actually have her quilt, which is pretty cool. Wow. Like out of all the kids, my grandma, because I was sewing it for her, my grandma was like, well, you can have it. But it, it's, it's like growing up, it was like it's a really it looks like a geese bin quilt. Like you can see denim patchwork, the cotton that's in it or like clumps of cotton with like burrs still in it. It's like like growing up, like, you know, you buy cotton by the roll at Nancy's studio and it looks neat. And it's like seeing just like, I mean, it looks like just it's just the twine that they used to sew it really hand spun. They lived in Alabama. Yes. Wow. And so it's like really just looking at this and you can see a dress, like the front of a dress is in it. You can see just, just, I mean, it's not in amazing condition. It's definitely like, oh, this is an ugly quilt, mom. Like, why do you keep showing me this? And she's like, because Sarah, like, like just kind of understanding the history of like slavery in the black community and the intersection of quilting. Like if you didn't make a quilt for your kids, you know, sometimes you guys wouldn't make it through the winter. And so it's like, um, so just the kind of understanding how deeply rooted quilting is in the black community, my grandma and even my great aunt, like they would hand quilt people's quilts for less than $20, mm-hmm. a full size quilt. And like they had a huge frame and like, I'm just like $20 to get someone to hand quilt. And then they'd use a sheet for the back. And I mean, just really just like, it's been such my grandma sewed. I mean, I mean, rudimentary compared to like paper piecing, like the real techniques that my parents, you know, taught me classes for, but like everyone kind of in, in like my older, my mom's side of the family really sewed well. So it's like, to, like, you know, handmade dresses. Like I kind of grew up with like, okay, sewing is, you do it because it's cheap. And now I think that the, the conversation on whether the utilitarian like resourcefulness of it has shifted. Like as my dad used to tell me all the time when I was in middle school, why, do, why am I spending and buying 15 yards of fabric for you to make a full size quilt? it's like you're wasteful and I'm like it's not about being wasteful dad it's about me learning like how to do this and so I think like buying a quote-unquote quilt from Walmart versus making a quilt one's a lot cheaper so it's like therefore you have to be able to to love it for the hobby and love it for the art and love it for the form of just expressing yourselves um Mm -hmm. rather than it's cheaper to make a quilt like it's shifted it has completely it's flipped completely um absolutely and um one did anybody in your family that you know of quilt or sew before you now to uh began sewing or are you the only one that you know Um, of i mean as of right now i'm the only one i mean i always seen my mom had a sewing machine but it wasn't really like to create nothing it was more to like fix clothes you know like because it was like going out and like outsourcing people to fix your clothes was in like like generally for like a mexican household it's like oh come here we're gonna sew this button back or we're gonna put this back together but like like generally like my family's just all gang members like my, starting from my grandma like my grandma's like the og gang member then my mom is like right under her and then my older brother's under her so it was kind of like it was kind of like weird because i'm a gang member too but like the thing is like i think it was just learning being in a different space and environment kind of like switching the narrative around yeah. like what it is to really be invested in yourself because it's like a lot of people like think that like gangs aren't really structured but like gangs is one of like the most structured like forms of like being placed with like a group of people that you don't really like necessarily aren't family with but like to create that that feeling or like security of being like family just by through a gang you know and like there's like a lot of things that that changed over time but like i was i was learning it was kind of like if i can invest myself so much into being a gangster and like actually doing things for them and carrying out things for them that they wanted me to do then i could do this you know and it wasn't like 
it wasn't like I never had like the experience because I always sold my own clothes like growing up like if I didn't like I don't know like if I had a hole or something like or if I needed a fixed jeans that was too long I would just sew it myself but yeah like as in family like I think I'm like the only one that actually knows how to do that how to do type that. of stuff yeah yeah okay um all right so um this has been so fascinating and um I want to make sure we get to your recommendations toward the end of the show because we always do that so um uh we're gonna start with you Juan. Um, so do you have something creative that you could recommend to a creative friend, a book, an app, anything like that that you think that people might enjoy? Um, for books, I mean, one of my favorite books is The Outsiders. It's kind of like the upbringing of like these poor kids in like a rural city in like Oklahoma that kind of like go through these trials and tribulations of being like growing up poor, you know, and like you have to fight like, like they're the greasers and then they got to fight like these elite kids that like go to like they have all this money and could afford to do all these things and they're called like the social like the socials so like to me that was kind of like it resonated with me a lot because it's like in in me growing up it was kind of like like we didn't have everything that we could possibly want but we still tried to like fit into like a regular society or like regular norms i guess that people would say and then like in that movie i was just like man like this is so relatable and like it's just crazy mm -hmm. and like some of the apps that i use to like put pictures like just like post pictures i use like a app called afterlight and then another one called photofox photofox is more like of a phone type photoshop like if you wanted to edit pictures or crop things out or like fade things together and like kind of create that photoshop look on your phone like that one is cool Afterlight is more like if you wanted to add things to pictures like grain, noise, um, colors, filters, and stuff like that. Like those are the things that I use. Mm -hmm. to, and you post those to mm -hmm. Instagram, Instagram, or Twitter, Inst yeah. Snapchat. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Cool. Thanks for recommendations. And to you, Sarah. I will follow you with my new favorite book right now. Okay. And it's How to Be an Anti-Racist by um, Dr. Kendi. And I think it's really just like I read it, and I think it's really just powerful. And I'd encourage you know anyone who wants to embroider an SJSA block if you have any free time for just additional reading. It's not even like like it's a book everyone should read. It's not for any specific type of person. It's really just it gives you a framework. It gives you some rhetoric to really you know defend things um, and really just understand. But but more than anything, I think it's just an eye-opening book that really talks about the current the current just discourse in America that's going on from comments, from microaggressions, from, I mean, not only in terms of, he of like dealing with it, but also in moving and healing from it. Like, you know, things that we can do moving forward. Great, thank you so much. Okay, those are two great recommendations from both of you. So um, thank you, Sarah and Juan for, um, for talking and sharing your story and um, telling us more about um, about Social Justice Sewing Academy. And if people want to schedule a workshop or just get in touch and um, make a donation, et cetera, where should they go, Sarah, to be able to, to get in touch with you and to do that? So if they want to do an exhibit, if they go to the Instagram or they can DM and we can shoot you a you know message saying here's the email this is the person or they can just go to the website and then there's always a get in, get connected you know type tab that you could send an email for an exhibit for a workshop for a donation everything's really on the website which is www.sjsacademy.com okay perfect well sarah and juan thank you so much for taking the time to be on the thank craft you. industry alliance podcast i really enjoyed talking thank with you. you appreciate the opportunity today's episode is sponsored by search press SearchPress is proud to sponsor this podcast and delighted to bring you wonderful craft books. As an independent, family-owned publisher, SearchPress works with art and craft authors to make beautiful books. So check them out at searchpressusa.com.
www.craftindustryalliance.com. Thank you very much, Search Press. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.